Now there's a brand new web page, especially for this podcast. The Politocrat Daily Podcast can now be found on thepolitocrat.com. A brand new page that centralizes all of the places that you can listen to this podcast. The major platforms and many others at thepolitocrat.com. Lots of content that you can see there right now and every single day. So subscribe now to the Politocrat Daily Podcast and make sure you visit thepolitocrat.com. Thank you. Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Friday, January the 15th. 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has his birthday today, and with his official holiday for his birthday coming up on Monday, today's topic is White America. White America really in some big trouble, I think. And it isn't even just because of what happened last week. It's because many are still profoundly in the dark about just how serious things are in this country when it comes to racism when it comes to the way this country will either survive or perish. Welcome back. It's definitely a difficult time in this country, but when has it ever not been a difficult time? The United States of America is 244 years old. And if it is to get to 245 years old in just a few months' time, then this year is going to have to be the year that the vast majority of its citizenry, meaning the nearly 70% or so that are white will have to get a reality check on just how serious just how serious the threat to the very fabric of this country is but in a very ironic way I use the word fabric Because fabric is actually the kind of fabric that is bloodstained. The kind of fabric that has for not only 244 years of the United States, but 500 plus years of America itself. 
has been drenched in blood. The country was born in violence. It was founded in and upon violence. And the real issue for everybody, but especially for white Americans, is when will you learn and confront the history of this country? Now, of course, there are, what, 25%, I would say. Maybe you might say more, but I would say around 25%, maybe 20% of the country that is very, very clear. 20% of white Americans who are very clear about what needs to be done, what their role has to be to change things, to be an anti-racist and to do the education that they have to do in their neighborhoods, in their families, in their communities, in their households. I mean, there's 20% of the country who are white, 20% of white people, I think. And of course, this is my opinion. I don't have a scientific database from which to pull this number. I am pulling it out of my but seriously now, this is no laughing matter or joking matter. My view is, is that we have about 20 or so percent of white America that gets very clearly what's going on, that understands. But I think there is 80% of white America that just either doesn't care, which is what I really think it is, don't care, or, quite frankly, isn't interested in doing a thing. When you have privilege, when you are in the majority, and when you know that the society that you are living in favors you and people who look like you, even if you aren't the richest person in that society, even if you aren't the most successful person in that society, what you will do, I think, and what I think a lot of white people are doing in that 80%, are hanging on to the benefits of being white in a system of whiteness. That's what I think is going on. And so that system for them is used as a cover not to challenge anything and benefit from the very racism they claim that they are not a part of. And so the words, I am not a racist, are futile, weak, source, distant, ineffectual. They don't matter. Because if you're not actively standing up against racism, if you're not actively in a company and saying, we need to hire some more black people in here. In fact, we need to hire black people here, period. I'm going to set about doing that and I'm going to hire some. And here are my first three picks. Let's bring them in and let's see what happens. Let's hire them. And if they don't pan out, the next group, I'm going to have are another few black people. 
If you're not doing things like that and you are in a position of power at your company that you work at, the few of you who are still working at this point, but if you're at a company running it or in a position to hire and you're not doing that, then you are a racist. Then you are someone who is not an anti-racist. Because you know well that the playing field of your workplace is predominantly white. You know that very well. You can count on one hand the number of black people that you have hired. You can count on one hand the number of black people who are managers at your company. In fact, You don't have any black managers at your company. Some of you, many of you, most of you, perhaps. And if they are managers at your company, what are they managing? If you are the average white person, ask yourself seriously, how many black friends do you have? And I posed this question several months ago on this podcast. When I asked The same question. And I said, take away people that you work with. Now, I understand that a lot of people in this country or in any country, they make friends with people they work with. But I also understand there are many people who do not fraternize with people they work with for many obvious reasons. And so those particular individuals do not have friendships with people at work. And there are good reasons for that, I think, in many instances. But I think what I am trying to get at here is how many white people listening to this have more than three black friends How many of you do? If you're white and you're listening to this, how many of you have more than three black friends? How many of you have more than one black friend? How many of you have any black friends? And I'm not talking about some ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or ex-husband, ex-wife. I'm talking about current, present, Friends, not work colleagues, not people you've been friends with. I'm talking about current friends who are black. Do you have one? There was this survey that came out, I don't know when it was, about three years ago now, maybe longer, four, four years ago maybe even less, that talked about 80% of white people or so, if not more, don't have any black friends whatsoever. 80% of white people in America, according to this particular study, and it might have been published in the Wall Street Journal, that 80 plus percent 
of white people in America, between 75 and 80% or so, do not have a single black friend to speak of. But I'm not racist. It's just one of those things to think about. I want to leave you with that for a moment. So I start with the very personal, a personal challenge. First about your role. Second about if you are someone at a company, do you actively pursue black people to hire? Have you hired any in your company if you're someone who is in a position of power? If you're not a hiring manager, have you made recommendations? Have you presented candidates? That's another part of this. The, the, and yet another part of it is your circle of social friends. How many of them are black presently? You know, it's almost as if I would love to just put this on Twitter anonymously and ask white people on a poll, because you know I love polls in that way. You know, I love polls <laughs> that uh, that I do. <laughs> but I don't like any other polls. It's just a purely selfish thing. Um, I will put these polls up on Twitter. Sometimes I'm sh- they're a little bit silly, I think. Some of them, are, I, I think, are less so. Um but then again, I, here I am saying that and I don't um, care for the polls that are done by these pollsters um, here in the United States, at least, because um, they are frequently wrong and people rely on them to their detriment. And as you know well, um, I kept saying throughout the U.S. presidential election not to rely on polls. And I was right again because, of course, these polls had things skewered completely wrong in a number of states, which is the new expectation. I'm not even going to say the word normal. I'm actually going to be talking to a pollster, but the pollster I'll be talking to is not from the United States. So um, when you hear that conversation um, in the not too distant future, um, do not be um, surprised um, because it's a very different different kind of conversation that I plan to have. So I want you to stay tuned for that um, in the uh, very near future. So all of that is to say that this Wall Street Journal study or whatever study it was in, whichever publication, said between 75 and 80% of white people in this country do not have a black friend. So that's the first part of this is all those things. The hiring... Um, you know, the friendships and and that and all of those things. I'm going to come back with the second component and then I'm going to talk about why I think white America is in for a real rude awakening here. Um, Because if it has taken people 244 years to figure out that A, black lives matter, and B, that there are white people who are bent on destroying the country with their violence and their sedition and their treason. If it has taken 
244 plus years for many white Americans to understand this intrinsically. And yet there still isn't any kind of countermand or demonstration against this in the wake, especially of what happened last week. Even in a pandemic, and I understand that, then I really do think that white America is in really, really serious shape, bad shape. I'll come back with a little bit more about why in just a moment. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on save bitterness. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call VC or Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? When they realized that we permitted the repression and cruelty of Diem, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South, what do they think of our condoning the violence, which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us for now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of Diem and charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part. They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter. And they are surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them. That was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April the 4th, 1967, from the Riverside Baptist Church in Harlem, USA, with one of the speeches that you don't hear nearly enough. In fact, it's not ever really played on television in the United States. It's called Beyond Vietnam, and it's often also called why I oppose the war in Vietnam. 
And that was just a part of the speech that lasts about 53 minutes or so, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And I'm going to provide a link to the entirety of that speech for you to listen to, and particularly on this day, Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. He would um, be such an important voice right now, and he still, of course, is an important voice. His voice is always with us and is present, but he's not here um, because that's the kind of person who would certainly be speaking out right now. But look what happened to Dr. King. He was murdered by Americans. He was murdered by white America, in fact. Metaphorically speaking. And today is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And Monday will be the national honoring of him and his birthday. And that holiday took almost 35 years to materialize. Can you imagine... Somebody who preached nonviolence. This gives you an idea of what America is. Somebody who preached nonviolence, who preached brotherhood, sisterhood, love, compassion, peace, justice, was murdered. I mean, that should tell you everything assassinated and it was by somebody white now people say it was James Earl Ray there are reasons to believe that that may not be true um, the King family have spoken about this at great length um, there's been discussion about this for a long time um, the bottom line is is that to show you what shape America is in in fact, what shape white America is in. A man, a black man, preaching peace, love, compassion, and justice. And moral right in terms of the deal with countries having their own elections when the United States of America has, through its foreign policy, decimated so many governments that were democratically elected. And that's the man that gets killed. That's the man that gets assassinated. He has the temerity to speak out against a war machine. And for that, he is murdered. He didn't do anything violent. Dr. King never did a thing violent. And he ends up being assassinated. And do you know that back in King's day, the vast majority of white Americans despised him? And they despised Malcolm X, and they despised Medgar Evers before them both. And that the New York Times had written some scathing editorials against Dr. King. In 65 and 66... You can look at all of them. They are available. But this notion that white people somehow loved Dr. King is just nonsense. And post his assassination, they loved him. Not every one of 
the white population in America. But, and there were some friends of his, obviously, who were white, and there were people in the civil rights movement who were white, who marched alongside him, some of whom died, you know, like Viola Luisa, like James Reeb, you know, those are just a couple of the names I can, I can mention. So there's very clearly, I, you know, I'm not saying every single person. What I am saying is that there is a vast indifferent majority, but that indifference isn't just indifference. It is its own racism. And that indifference is the racism. And that's the thing that those white people have that they are completely uncaring about. And they're very clear. And I say this not just because of experience. I say this because white people tell me this. You know, I, and, and I don't even have to have them tell me this. I know it. I see it. You see it. It's on your TVs. You know people in your family, as I've said before, who are racist. You know people in your family who use the N-word right now in 2021. You've used it. You have a spouse who uses it. You've taught your children to use it. You know friends of yours who use it. You grew up in a household where it was used. How many, I mean, how many of you who are white, who are listening to me now, whether you are white Americans or white anything else or anyone else, grew up in a household where your dad or your mother or your brother or your sister said N. You can't tell me that you weren't in a household like that. And if you weren't in a household like that, then a friend of yours definitely used that word, that heinous word. It's not even a word. It's just an e it's an evil, evil utterance. Did anybody really care? I mean, people say that. Oh, yeah, you know, September the 15th, 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, the, the 16th Street Baptist Church. Well, you know, that really changed the way America did it. Did it really change? Was that really the last straw? Is that some kind of narrative that we are being fed? Because you knew about the four little girls in 1963. You knew about Dr. King in 68 RFK in 68 before that it was our it was JFK Malcolm X Medgar Evers you knew about what happened you knew about what happened With Rodney King. You knew about what happened with Abner Luima, Amadou Diallo, Yvonne Smallwood, Tatiana Jefferson, Patrick Dorismond, Philip Parnell, Yusuf Hawkins. You knew what happened. Michael Brown. Trayvon Martin, 
Jordan Davis. He knew what happened. He knew what happened. Rakia Boyd. Tony McDade. Sandra Bland. You knew what happened. Ahmaud Arbery. George Floyd. Breonna Taylor. Rayshard Brooks. Eric Garner. You knew what happened. You knew what happened. And there was a murder in Philadelphia. Police murdered another brother there during the election season. It was literally in late October as people were voting in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Just this week in Killeen, Texas, a mentally challenged black man walking around in his garden area in front of his house didn't have any weapon on him. He was murdered. Just like Tamir Rice was murdered. Just like John Crawford III was murdered. Just like Stephon Clark was murdered. We literally cannot even walk down a street anymore. We literally cannot have six-year-old black girls standing in front of their stoop selling water right here in San Francisco, California without a white woman coming up and calling the police on the six-year-old black girl. We literally cannot even stand in front of our homes that we own without having some white couple, some white man and white woman question, what are you doing? You don't live here. I know who lives here. You don't live here. That too happened here in San Francisco, California, just last year. All of these events, whether it's police doing this or whether it is the average white person doing this and the sickness of it all, dear listener, is that people are giving these folks nicknames. Barbecue Becky. Karens. That's how a sick society is. That is a racist society that will turn these acts of trauma and interrogation of black people by white people into nicknames for the interrogators, for the assaulters, for the people inflicting this racism and trauma on us, putting us in risk of our lives. And instead of calling this what it actually is, 
You call them Karens. You call them Barbecue Becky. Instead of calling them the racists that they are. You are just comfortable in this society. Your privilege drives you. And by the way, there's some black folk who know better who also join in this. And you keep repeating that word, Karens. It is so utterly pathetic, actually. And it says a whole lot about American society. That we would turn, not we, me, and maybe not you. That people would turn people who do this thing into nicknames. Do we give rapists nicknames? Do we give black people who commit crimes nicknames? I know you call them N. I mean, I know that's what people call black people who are committing crimes. But are you giving them these affectionate names? Are you going to be all alliterative? Yeah, you call her Barbecue Becky. What do you call somebody black who calls the cops on someone who isn't doing a thing? Well, you really don't. Because this is not something black people do. We have better things to do in our lives. We are too busy dodging the bullets of hatred and racism in an institutionally racist society. Not to mention the ramifications of that society when it comes to the poverty in some of the neighborhoods that are black, where there is gun violence. And most of that gun violence, if not all of it, is a reaction to the systemic racism and whiteness. So the poverty forces them into crime. And it's systemic poverty because that poverty could easily be avoided. But you choose to allocate resources only to white neighborhoods and to affluent ones. And even ones that aren't so affluent. Whereas the black neighborhoods, the ones that are poor, are left poor and are made poor by choices being made by people in power. This is really what's going on, folks. But I rattled off a list of names a few moments ago. And I want to know again, and I still haven't had a reliable answer to this question. And I've asked white people offline what I'm going to say to you right now. Why did it take George Floyd? And I say his name in that tone, but I mean it in the most respectful way. Why did it take George Floyd for many more white people to wake up? All of these killings, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, I can go on and on, have been on video forever, on a loop with the news media. But it was George Floyd that 
you said, oh, that's enough. Enough's enough. I'm going to stand up now. You know, if there were white people, men and women, being killed like this on video, I dare say it wouldn't have taken you this long to make a stand about it if you are white. You would have been in the streets from the start and this thing would have been over. If white people were being killed at this rate by law enforcement, by police, you wouldn't have law enforcement around to be doing this. So I ask once again, why did it take many white people to finally wake up when it was George Floyd? Why was it George Floyd that did that? When we've had for centuries these killings of black people. White people lynching black people. You had lawyers, doctors, nurses. And that's the portion of this inquiry that I'll get to in a moment. But again, I want to leave this segment with this question for people who are white, who are listening. I really would like you to answer this for me, please. Why do you think it took the assassination, the lynching, the execution of George Floyd for many of your kith and kin, and maybe you yourself, to finally wake up and stand up. with happy birthday Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday today and um, may the uh, good Lord rest his soul may he rest in power eternally Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. American hero civil rights um, legend of course and uh, leadership unparalleled in, in human rights and civil rights in the United States and of course the Nobel Peace Prize winner as well incidentally but more importantly than that, he was someone who was the conscience of America um, and in many ways still is. You know, we, we lost the conscience of America as well last year in John Lewis. We also lost some of the other uh, lieutenants or lieutenants, as it's pronounced in England, um, people like Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry and Reverend uh, C.T. Vivian, Dr. C.T. Vivian, um, two other great stalwarts of the uh, civil rights, human rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, who were really very close to Dr. King as well. And, um, you know, this is, these are, um, these are people that we have to keep studying and white people have to keep studying them. Um, there are a lot of black folk, black people who are very familiar with the individuals I have just rattled off, um, but white people need to be familiar with them too. And I know that some are, but this isn't about the some. This is about the many who aren't or who do not care. And as I said to you before, there are many, many people that I know, um, 
who have told me this, who are white, who have told me this. Um, you know, I, I know someone who told me recently. I'm not going to give out names or anything like that or anything else. But I will just say that they told me recently that they want to leave their town because the level of racism now, outward racism by white people in the town that this person is in, is so sky high that the person wants out. And that that person who is white is her or his. <laughs> I've just given the game away here. Um, but they want out. They totally want out. This last portion is the violence portion, the white violence that many white people are either numb to, deaf to, don't care about, cheerlead. You have to understand why I titled this particular episode of this podcast, Why White America is in Trouble. Because throughout just the last 100 years, the amounts of people who did lynchings or who attended them in this country. I mean, you'd have thousands of people in the town squares of cities all over the country. And please don't tell me it was just in the South. It was out here in California. There's places like Pleasanton, which isn't all that far from San Francisco, where lynchings of black people was a regular occurrence were a regular occurrence. This has been, this is going on all over the country. This has been. And in places like Alabama, people were dressing up in their Sunday bests. You had thousands of white people, everyday people with their kids Mothers and fathers, everything but the family dog attended these lynchings of black people. And they all stood there, posing for pictures, smiling at the camera, with a dead black person dangling just inches away from them. That should tell you that you are in real trouble in this country because you're going to get a rude awakening. The country was born into violence and anybody who's standing there posing for pictures, watching black people get burned alive, castrated, eviscerated, disemboweled. People don't even know. I want you to go and look up Moore's Ford Bridge. Type into your search engine Moore's, same last name as me, apostrophe S, Ford Bridge. And... You tell, well, you'd have to tell me. 
I already know what you're going to find. But I want you to type that in. That's your homework. Right? That I mean, I don't give you homework. That's Randy Rhodes. Randy Rhodes does that. Right? I've talked about Randy Rhodes. I want you to I really do want you to I really want you to type in Moore's Ford Bridge. You you tell me what you find. The Moore's Ford Bridge. And you'll pretty much fi- find it, right? You will find and you will instantly see what it is I'm referring to. Moore's Ford Bridge. Do you know who James Bird is? I know that there are people who do, but do you know who James Bird is? I want you to type his name into your search engine as well. James Bird, and his last name is B-Y-R-D. Type that name in as well. What I'm trying to say to you is, is that this white violence must end. It must end. It is killing too many people, including, by the way, some of you. You have a 17-year-old in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And to show you how sick, once again, this all is, how evil the country is in terms of the way that white people absolutely behave when this happens, at least the ones I'm about to talk to you about. That 17-year-old murderer Murdered two white people, by the way. And then shot another one, shot his arm off. Admitted it. Said, I just killed people. I've killed two people. I killed people. Said that to the police. And the police let him walk. They let him go. Do you... Not remember that, dear listener. August of 2020. They let that 17-year-old murderer go. Back across state lines. His mother had given him that AK-47 or whatever, AR-15, whatever it was. But it was an assault rifle that was illegal and it should not have been brought across state lines. And he was released on bail recently. And he's got this t-shirt on. And he's laughing and posing for cameras. And he's got a GoFundMe page that's in the millions of dollars. Millions of dollars have been donated to the guy. He's 17. He's a murdering thug. He's a murderer. And there are people who have donated money to him for murdering Two people. And on his t-shirt are the words F-R-E-E free as fuck. And that that dear listener is the very definition of the very serious trouble that white America is in.
Black people know this story. We know how it ends. We fight for this country when this country hates us. And I've said this before. Black people are the most patriotic people in this country. And that is going to irk some of you listening. But that's okay. You can be irked for an episode. We go through this every single second of our lives. So if you want to be irked, that is obviously your prerogative. But this is a truth. We are the ones, we are the ones who save this America, even when it doesn't care about us, when it never has cared about us. You've got people caged, brown people caged, kids in concentration camps right now. Justice Department memo comes out yesterday or the day before report that the Justice Department didn't care. It was their doing. They wanted to separate these families and do it deliberately to cause pain and hurt. It was malicious. There was no reason for this but to punish You don't even know what this is. I don't think half of white America has a clue, a clue of what is going on around them. James Baldwin has been at this forever. Angela Davis has been at this forever. Toni Morrison, before she passed away, has been telling you forever. Maya Angelou, I could go on and on and on. Of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., You just don't know how many black people have died telling you that you're going to have to change. And there have been some white people who've died trying to tell you. We tried to tell you. But I think it's way past telling. It is too late now. And for those who say, oh, you're pessimistic, That's, you know, I actually think that that's a point of privilege too. That comes from a very privileged lens in my view. To call me pessimistic when all I've known and my ancestors have known since we were dragged here in chains from the African continent has been violence and racism and discrimination and institutional systemic whiteness and anti-blackness. Which is also systemic. To call me as a black man, as a black person, pessimistic? (laughs) There's something wrong with you, not with me. This isn't even about pessimism. This is about what has happened to me, to us. This is about what happens when, as I told you before on this podcast, you go into a laundromat in San Francisco. And you've got some white guy without a mask on on top of it saying N in the woodpile in 2021 or in any year. Doesn't matter what year it is. None of it's acceptable. So excuse me if uh, there's somebody listening to this thinking, well, he's just doom and gloom. I guess you've got your rose colored glasses on then.
We tried to tell you. We tried to tell you. Viola Luisa tried to tell you. Malcolm X tried to tell you. James Reeb tried to tell you. John Brown tried to tell you. Nat Turner tried to tell you. Harriet Tubman tried to tell you. Sojourner Truth tried to tell you. Ida B. Wells tried to tell you. Barbara Jordan tried to tell you. Shirley Chisholm tried to tell you. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tried to tell you. James Baldwin tried to tell you. Medgar Evers tried to tell you. I can go on. What are you going to do about all of this? Police allowing a 17-year-old murderer who admitted his crimes to walk free. Police allowing a violent, terroristic, insurrectionist, seditionist coup attempt to happen. Opening up the barricades, waving them in, posing for selfies. Do you notice the theme? I'm posing for selfies like I posed with the dead black bodies that were hanging, that were burnt at the stake. Do you notice the theme? I'm posing next to those pile of Iraqi bodies, those Iraqis that we piled up, dead or alive, in Abu Ghraib. Do you notice that? Do you notice the theme, America? Do you notice the theme, white America? And then you would sell parts of our bodies. We have not made that many white people have not looked at their history. They've not looked at American history at all. They don't want to. They don't care to. They don't care. That is the conclusion. They are racist and they do not care. Because if they did care, and if we had 80% of white America care, this stuff would have been done with. We wouldn't have all of this now. We wouldn't. Mobs of people attacking the seat of government. That's an attack on you and me. That's an attack on all of us. And these attacks have been going on for 200, 300, 400, 500 years. White men have been just attacking and murdering and genociding. You have the guy in the White House who's got a few more days left. Five more days of him. And all he did was destroy I kept saying this to you. He was the one who stood there and then waltzed in after you and me were tear gassed. The metaphorical you and me were tear gassed in Lafayette Park, in Lafayette Square, in Washington, D.C., June 1st of 2020. He strode in like he was on an invisible white horse, strode in. 
peaceful protest. We weren't even, they weren't even protest. They were just walking down the street with their signs. Last time I checked in America, that was something you could do. I mean, Lord forbid. You know, you had all of this violence. You had these people traipsing around in the Michigan State Capitol back in April. Police didn't do a damn thing to them. Not a blooming thing. They had guns. They were, they were armed with their guns. They were in the chamber. Two of them wanted, we found out later, wanted to kidnap and kill the governor of the state of Michigan. Oh, but that's okay. Like I say, you know, that's the attitude of people. That white violence is fine. Oh, okay. It's not okay. It's never okay. No violence is okay. It's not okay. But when you've got laws that say open carry, now I know the Michigan legislature now has since, oh, in their infinite wisdom has decided we better not allow open carry in here. But there is open carry still in the state. That should tell you a whole lot right there, America. When you're States' laws are allowing open carry in this environment now. Still, you've had open carry for all this time. And to show you how racist this country is, when in California, in the mid-1960s, you had the Black Panthers, just with their rifles in an open carry state. That's what California was. Open carry ended after the Black Panthers were on the state capitol steps with their rifles demonstrating and the governor Ronald Reagan you remember him said nope this is it that's enough we can't have those people those black folk with weapons and that was the end of open carry in the state of California you see how perilously evil do you see how this is a system of whiteness. And in a system of whiteness, somebody who is Asian can utilize whiteness because it's a system, not a person. But it is tied to white people and it is tied to power and it is tied to Oppression and it is tied to discrimination and racism against black folk, against anybody of color. This anti blackness that is very rife and pervasive, it's in the system, it's part of it. And so you had Donald Trump parading around on June the 1st of last year, police attacking, tear gassing. Soldiers t attacking. You have police attacking journalists, attacking black people. Actually, it was mostly white people that was walking, walking in that demonstration. Attacking them. Tear gassing them. But where was the tear gas for this lot of terrorist thugs? This group of terrorists. Because the people walking in June were peaceful. And they got attacked. And then the terrorists who beat a police officer to death on the steps of the Capitol and caused the deaths of four other people. One other additional person took his own life. That was a police person. Where was the tear gas for them? And I'm not even advocating violence, but I'm just saying, 
Where was the tear gas for them? We are just looking at the beginning of real trouble for white Americans. Because you're going to have to make a choice here. You're going to have to start confronting members of your own family who are going to the U.S. Capitol or going to a state capital this week or next or next month or next year. You're going to have to start turning them in like this young white woman did the other day. She turned in her mother and her uncle. You're going to have to start doing things like that, folks. And I'm talking to white people who are listening to me right now. You are going to have to turn in members of your family. If you get word that they're doing something like this, you need to drop the dime on them. And I know in the mob culture, I can hear you now. Oh, I'm not going to be a rat. I'm not going to be a rat. That's not right. That's not right. It is right. It is right. You've got some choices to make. And so this is another reason why I say white America is in big trouble. Because... We'll see who is going to stand up and be counted now. There's certainly a section of white America that is standing up and being counted. And it's those terrorists that are murdering people and threatening politicians. Oh, they've, they've, they've let you know what they're about. Murder, violence, terrorism, sedition, insurrection, coup attempts. They want to overthrow the government. There's no question. And you know some of these people, some of you. That, I think she was only 17, 18, 17 year old, white girl, white woman, white girl, white female. Let me just say that instead of anything. 17 year old white female has the sense to do the right thing. Some of you who are three, four times her age have done nothing about stuff like that. You know they're in your family. You know they're in your immediate family. You know that. But you don't do anything. So you enable them. You abet them. You are them. Only you don't speak. The only difference between you and them is that you do not speak. In fact, they may have at least the evil guts to open their mouth and be disgusting and racist. And what are you doing? You sit there silently. You don't challenge them. You laugh when they make a so-called joke at your workplace, but you don't confront them. Do you? Do you? I've done it many times when um, when I've been in the office, when I've been in any office that I've worked in, I have confronted this stuff directly. Sure, you know that you could be risking something, but if you are someone who talks the talk, you have to walk the walk. And this is the thing that really gets me. Another reason why I think white America is in real trouble 
is that when an Olympic gold medalist swimmer gets arrested and charged for being involved in this terrorist, violent, attempted overthrow of government, and they can tweet out something like, this is very disconcerting, And then just a few yards away from where that Olympic swimmer, this gold medal, I can care how many blooming medals he's won. Take his bloody medals away from him. But then just a few yards away, Representative Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, the black congresswoman, has her panic buttons removed from inside her office. And it was done without her knowledge. She found out somehow, but it was done. Nobody told her they were doing that. Somebody removed the panic buttons inside her office. Is that disheartening? Is that disconcerting? The, t- the actual tweet was, this is very disheartening. What about what happened to Ayanna Presley, Representative Presley? Was that disheartening? Was that at best very disheartening? And that's what gets me. And yes, it was a white person who made the comment on Twitter. Someone who actually, I think, should certainly know better. But the reason why I'm so pissed off about that is because it symbolizes the truth in this country and its history is that the white man who commits violence gets all the accolades and the plaudits And he's lauded and he's given sympathy and empathy. Empathy. Oh, Mike Pence. Oh, he's doing the right thing. Oh, Mike Pence. This guy's involved in it. This is the guy who sat there silently for four years and then out and out showed his contempt for brown people when he went down to the border and looked into the cages in those concentration camps south of the border and kind of had a blank look on his face as he looked at all the men crammed up together in a small space. This is just before COVID began and the stench and he just walked away. I don't think he even got a tour of the kids or the women. He just walked away. That's Mike Pence. And now people are lauding him. White Americans, some of them, lauding him. And I'm not even talking about people in the Republican Party, in the Trump Party. I'm talking about people who call themselves Democrats. I know someone like this. Lauding the man. For what? Exactly. You see how white Americans and, quite frankly, some black folk, Black Americans, African Americans, 
Some of us laud these people for doing the bare minimum. I talked about this previously. You laud the Olympic swimmer. Oh, this is very disheartening. What's more disheartening? What he did and what he's being charged with at least or the fact that he's an Olympic swimmer, gold medalist, who is a white man. Is that what's the more disheartening thing for you? Or is the more disheartening thing for you that a congresswoman had panic buttons, emergency buttons that she could press to get Capitol Police summoned immediately to her office? Should there be some kind of intruder? Should there be somebody committing violence against her or threatening to? She could press a button someplace silently and and bring the police to her and those buttons were removed in this climate. So what's more disheartening? And that is at best disheartening. At worst, it is evil and needs to be punished. And they need to find whoever that was or whoever they were that removed those panic buttons. Oh, yeah. But somehow when Matt Lauer has a panic button or a lock, a lock under his desk, that gets a bit more tension and a little bit more alarm than Representative Ayanna Presley, who is a congresswoman, and they're attacking her and threatening her life and put and removing panic buttons. See what we've see why the country's in trouble? It's been in trouble. It is troubled. It's been troubled. And articles in the Associated Press, oh white supremacy symbols. And they don't tie it back to the violent history of the country. Oh, well, since the Civil War, and that's when it showed up, and that's when, and they're still here today in 2021. And no examination of the system of which they come from. No examination of the genocide of Native Americans. No examination of the enslavement of Africans, of black folk. None. No examination of the laws, the Jim Crow, none of it. The the Hilton Tay the the Tay the, the Hayes Tilden Compromise, eighteen seventy six, eighteen seventy seven. No examination. Oh, it's the white supremacy symbols, and they're just here. You're in trouble. You're in real trouble. Real trouble. And you can't even see it. You know, I watched this Frontline thing last night. It was a repeat Frontline documentary. I think it's American Voices during 2020, the pandemic. That was the theme. You have this 70-year-old white woman talking about, oh, well, you know, uh, I don't think that black, it's not black lives matter. All lives matter. And, and it's really, that's unfair to say black lives matter. You're in trouble. You are in trouble. And Amy Cooper and, you know, calling the cops on someone who's just minding his business, watching birds, you know, that gets a call from the police. 
a brother here in San Francisco opening up his lemonade stand, opening the open the key to the door and five cop cars are on him. This was two, three years ago. And to support him, I went there and patronized him when I found out exactly where it was in the Mission District here in San Francisco. And they had guns drawn on the guy. He had to show them his keys. Look here, Mike. This is how this is how evil it is. He had to show. I mean, these cops had their guns drawn. Their guns were drawn at this young brother who was opening his lemonade stand. Guns drawn at him. He had his keys in his hand to open his business. And some white person who had moved into the neighborhood decided, oh, what's this guy doing here? He must be breaking in because, you know, that's all black people do, you know. You, you're so very disheartened by the white Olympic swimmer. But when it's the black person. Oh, yeah. Some crime somewhere. It's to be expected. That is the white mind for you in 2021, in 1821, in 1521. It's expected. Even people who say that they are the most egalitarian people have these things, they have these feelings and these thoughts. They pulse through their brains. They try to fight the impulse, but no, no. They know what the truth is in their hearts, what they think about black people. And you know it too. You underestimate. You undervalue and you marginalize. You look at us through a fragment and you dismiss and trivialize us at your peril. When all the while, the people who've been doing the saving in this country by and large are black people, black women. When it comes to the ballot box, Eugene Goodman the other day, last week, when he led that bunch of pathetic white male terrorists pathetic privilege and they're charging after the man he looks around nobody manning that area where the senate is still in session he leads them the opposite way saving the country one man you want to talk about superman making up these films of the man of steel and dc comics and all of this what about superman mr uh, eugene goodman Didn't he leap tall staircases backwards in a single bound when he got those terrorists to follow him? And he was unarmed, by the way. I didn't know that because I couldn't tell whether there was a gun there or not. There was no gun because he's wearing an all dark uniform. There was no gun. He unarmed. How come white cops can't do that? And how come, you know the outcome, if that's a bunch, if that's a group of black people run up them steps after a white cop, you know what's happening. Out comes the gun. Joe Biden will honor 
I'm sure, and he will do it. Honor Eugene Goodman with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That's going to happen sometime next week. And I tell you, it's got to happen soon. I can go on and on. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, all these people who have saved this country when it didn't want to care to be saved. They didn't care to want it. People shrugging their shoulders. Chuck Schumer saying this. Someone he knows, a, a friend of his, one of that friend's family members shrugging his shoulders at the violence. Yeah, he wouldn't have shrugged his shoulders if it was black people doing that. He would have had an opinion that would have involved more than shrugging his shoulders. That I can tell you. It's all about who you value and who you hate. And it is really that simple. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore.